Hey, this is Dan from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I never listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore. <clears throat> I mean, uh, I subscribe and everything, but that's just so I get the notifications so I can uh, extra not listen. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. Alright everybody, welcome to the show, episode 536 of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and I'm joined today by the lovely, the talented, the scholarly, the kind of freaked out by animals, Brittany Page, everybody. Which episode did you say this was? 536. Oh, alright. Let me go ahead and change this information that I'm typing. <laughs> You know what I did a little differently this time mm-hmm. when I introed the show there? Mm-hmm. I spoke slightly slower. Okay. I was listening to Ryan Bell's show today. Uh-huh. And he he can be understood when he when he talks, when he intros his show. Yeah. And I kind of just get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. So it's a little a little jumbled. Well, I think everyone appreciates your attention to detail. <laughs> And this time I'll be back to normal the next episode. Copycat of Ryan Bell. I'm not trying to copy Ryan Bell. Yeah. Ryan should be copying me. So are you saying that I'm afraid of animals because of pops or because oh, of yeah, I forgot about the that. birds story? Uh, well, it was the birds. Mm-hmm. Um, but Popeye has been the, Popeye the bulldog. I think I think we know who Popeye is. Well, we do, but oh, some right, new right, listeners right, right, right. might not know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't have like a static core of like 500 listeners who are only there. I There's understand. Thousands of others. I forget. Who- it's easy to forget. <laughs> yeah. But we have we, the mascot of the show is Popeye, the English bulldog. Yes, and he had he, this week. Man, he did. We don't want to get into details, but he had and he um, no longer does sorry if you're eating <laughs> breakfast or some other meal of the day it was supposed to be a joke but um doesn't make it any less gross we were worried about him but it has passed it is no longer an issue and we think that maybe and this is really sad but that he was stressed out from all of the moving around that we were doing with the new studio yeah um possibly like, he, like maybe paranoid that we were like getting rid of him yeah and that's so sad but he is a very clingy clingy dog um not a cuddler not a cuddler but a clinger but very clingy <laughs> if you get up to walk into the next room he jumps up and runs after you because he does not want even a chance that he's going to be left alone also there might be food involved that's true yes <laughs> um but <laughs> in addition to the pops um should we like bleep you know should we bleep that 
Well, now I would have to have bleeped it twice or three times. There was no way for me to reference what I said without saying it again. That's why I paused. I was trying to think. Couldn't well, think of anything. Some BD. Is that what I should have said? So, so, so now if I bleep it, everyone will be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Uh, I think I'm going to bleep it. You know, I think I'm going to bleep it just for the fun, for the joke of it. I don't think that people should be so sensitive because... I'm bleeping it. In fact, you know, i got to write some times down here. So one time I was at Thanksgiving at... My my aunt's house and my uncle's girlfriend was there and I was we were at the dinner table. Is this the puke story? Yeah. Oh, I and love this. I said the word puke. Like I didn't go into details. I didn't talk about chunks. Was like, I didn't no, talk no. about color. <laughs> I didn't talk about said, oh, the, the that, scent. That makes me want to puke. Yeah. I said the word and my uncle's ex-girlfriend got up from the table, very pissed off, went into the other, like stormed out and said she couldn't be around that. The word. Yeah, while we were yeah. eating. And I'm like, really? The, I can't say the word while how, we're eating? How you know? genteel of her. Yeah, it just, it seems a little excessive. How refined of her. I don't, I don't think so. She was slumming it with the common folk talking about puke. Yeah, but listen, if you are sensitive to that, I apologize. I'm sorry. Well, it's getting bleeped anyway, so they don't have any idea what you're talking about. Well, I'm sure they can put two and two together. With no. The- That's getting bleeped, too. Everything <laughs> no, in not. reference to it is getting no, bleeped. No, it's not. Oh, yeah, it'll be a very hilarious joke. All right. Okay. <laughs> I love hilarious jokes. So. Yeah. I think my standard of what's hilarious is probably a little off kilter. Yeah. Well, I came across this story. Actually, you came across this story and sent it. And it is from Florida. Or it happened in Florida. And it reminded me of the old segment that we used to have on the show. Remember yeah. the Florida Files? The Florida Files. Which, of course, yeah, that this is... used to be a regular... Oh, the, That the, is the, the Rockford Files theme. The Rockford theme. Files. This I... was pretty much the only creative um, contribution I've ever made to the show, which is... <laughs> Well, my mom loved the Rockford Files, um, and so I always loved that theme song. And when we were trying to brainstorm segments when we were first creating the show, um, Florida Man was like a popular Twitter account. And you well, know, wacky shit happens in Florida, or at least the information is available to find out about wacky shit happening in Florida. Right, because it's come become a thing. And so we decided to do Florida Files, and then I said, oh, let's do the Rockford Files theme. And... Then it was born. And then it was born. And then uh, we just stopped doing it. Yeah, and then we... Maybe, maybe we stopped <laughs> we doing said, it. said, never mind. I think maybe we stopped doing it because the, the show took off. Uh-huh. And then we started having listeners in Florida. And it's like, you know, you don't want to be shitting on... Like we have Idaho files and it's just, you know, I, I fucking play the banjo music. Yeah. I think Floridians know. You know what I mean? Right. They know what they signed up for. Yeah. Or what they were born into. <laughs> whatever, what however were, it went. What they signed up for. Yeah. So anyway, let's let's get to this rebirthed segment of Florida Files. Just for today. Just Well, we'll see. Maybe it'll be a hit. Yeah. Well, this vacation home in Palm Beach was purchased for $702,000. Wow. Okay. So it was supposed to be a lovely... So not a condo. Lovely vacation home but it turned out that hundreds of turkey vultures <laughs> I, just, I love it um <laughs> made this property their own 
Yes. If you don't know what I mean by that, let me tell you. So the family that purchased it says that when they are in town, they have to put their car in the garage or the birds will encircle it and dent it with their beaks. Like, that's how territorial they are over this Yeah, it's like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, it's terrifying. And they've taken over the yard. They've torn apart screened enclosures, according to this article, and made pools um patios and barbecues their own so read read the headline of the article which is what drew me to it vacation home beset by legion of barfing and shitting vultures does it say shitting yes (laughs) it's deadspin barfing and shitting Vultures. Yes. Um, they, and I also love that they, it, they, it's like apocalyptic, but it's they're beset on all sides of the property. Yeah. The word beset is, I'm a fan. Yeah, I can tell. Um, there's a quote here. It says, quote, the vultures just vomit everywhere, defecating and vomiting. It's just gross. <laughs> we can't even go back down to the house. I just read a story about a house that was purchased Connecticut somewhere, I think. Mm -hmm. And they were getting weird. They were going to remodel this old historic house. And they were getting uh, um, letters from someone called the Watcher. Who was like making threats about them remodeling, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they bought it for like 1.3 or 1.4 million. And then they sold it like five years later. Having never moved into it for 900 grand. Because... No one would buy it because of this these threatening fucking weird shit. Sounds like a situation for these people. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't sound like a good time. It also reminds me, we just started watching Succession on HBO, and it kind of reminds me of a scene from, was that the season premiere? Oh, yeah, yeah, in the, the, the yeah. Just don't. Yeah. Don't. Spoiler alert. There's going to be no spoilers. That's right. <laughs> we know how you get with the spoilers. So yeah, we don't I don't do want to do that. So according to this article, um, they interviewed a local professor, and he recommended that the family get a federal permit to kill one of the vultures. Just one of them? And then hang it in a tree or other spot where other vultures can see it for miles around. <laughs> They're sitting in a mess. It's like mafia style. Or have a taxidermist stuffed one, stuff one, and that will last and keep them away for years, he said. Quote, really? A black-headed vulture will not go within eyesight of its own dead, which is bizarre. They eat roadkill, but if they see their own, they will not go near it. Wow. Who knew? That, seriously. You're, you're, you're making them an offer they can't refuse. You're... You're, that's a, that's like a like you're sending them a message, you know. Yeah. Luke yeah. Brasi swims with the fishes. Yeah. It's a Godfather. Oh. Yeah, we're we're on a Chris Cuomo Fredo kicks here, so I'm making Godfather references. Yeah, I thought it was Sopranos, but. <laughs> well, no, they talk about it too because it's such a, a thing. Anyway, so this is pretty Florida. I mean, Florida is our Australia. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. It's a terrifying place. Yeah. Politically and apparently wildlife-wise as well. So Yeah. Too many animals for my taste. Yeah, too, well, too many turkey vultures. Just too many animals. Too period. Many <laughs> giant, barfing, shitting, roadkill-eating birds. Yikes. Who dent cars with their beaks. 
That, just because you're trying to live there. <laughs> just because you're trying to live there. Mm-hmm. No good. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Little quiz time, Jesse uh, D. I love the quizzes. Transubstantiation. <laughs> really? Why? Or why? You want me to define it? Yes. Oh, all right. Transubstantiation, one of my favorite things uh, in the religious area of study. Mm-hmm. It's a doctrine in the Catholic Church that teaches that when you take communion, when you eat the little cracker and drink the little wine. The bread and the wine. I'm doing a little Donald Trump there. I know. My little cracker. Yeah. Drink my little wine. Very respectful. That, uh, when, that uh, when you actually eat the cracker and drink the wine, it doesn't just metaphorically represent the blood and the body, the flesh of Jesus Christ, it physically transforms into literally the blood and flesh of G- of this of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the Catholic Church. That's their modern day literal doctrine. Right, right now as we speak it, uh, of transubstantiation. That's what they believe about uh, communion. Why do you ask, though? So another quiz I time. I play pew, so something's going another on. Another quiz time. Um, if you had to guess the percentage of Catholics that would say they believe that um, doctrine, hmm, that nonsense, what what would you say the percentages? Uh, well, based on the fact that so many of them violate the church's doctrine. Well, I, violating it and believing it are two different things. Like birth control, they still they they're popping them like Tic Tacs, but they don't. You know, they're, but they're still Catholic. Um, but they probably still believe that it's not great, or at least they have guilt about it. I don't know. Let's say uh, straight up 50-50%. All right. On the first question, good job, you're right. On the second question, eh, you're wrong. Wait, what was the first question? About what transubstantiation is. Oh, yeah, yeah. I knew I was right about that. All I right. didn't know I was being... Oh, yeah, that was part of the quiz. So nearly 7 in 10 Catholics, 69%, say they personally believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine used in communion are, quote, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 70%, 69%. Yes. So, Just are you telling me 31%? 31% actually believe yes. that eating your little water cracker, your little your little tasteless cracker, and drinking your little, your little Welch's grape juice wine... That it literally, mm-hmm. physically, literally, I don't mean metaphorically, I mean literally, like the real definition, not this new fangled definition of literally, turns into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in your stomach. Just one third of U.S. Catholics, <laughs> 31%, say they believe that, quote, during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. I, now, I don't even know what to say. Actually, for me, though, this is a low number, right? Because if you're going to call yourself a Catholic, you're going to be a, a member of the faith, you'd think that you would, number one, recognize the tenets, and number two, believe the tenets, right? This kind of reminds me of a Facebook debate I had some years ago with 
some turd that I went to school with when I was younger. A Catholic gentleman. And he, um, it was, it was in a debate about all the abuse that's rampant in the Catholic church. And this was probably 10 years ago. So that's how long the abuse in the Catholic church has been in the news, obviously for much longer than that. But yeah, you yeah. understand, um, but, but, you but understand. It's been hotly debated for at least that long. There we go. And I was talking about how the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Right? Very, very basic tenet of the Catholic Church. And he said no, that he doesn't believe that. (laughs) And I was very confused by that. What a wonderful Catholic. You know, but it's just kind of confusing because you're you're wondering, well, where do you go with that, right? But I guess people can, you know, pick and choose what to believe from their religion, obviously. Evangelicals do it every single day, hundreds and hundreds of times. Right. I was just saying from my perspective, I thought that that percentage would be higher because I would assume people that give themselves that label would adhere to the tenets of the faith. But, you know, maybe not. Who are you to judge? I'm not <laughs> judging. I'm just saying what no, I thought. I, mean, I, I didn't mean that's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying like, yeah, you know, flippantly, who are you? You, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get defensive, Brittany Page. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not trying one on or having a go or whatever the fuck the sayings are. Well, this was actually interesting because um, in addition to asking Catholics what they believe on this issue, transubstantiation, Pew also included a question that asked whether they know that the church teaches this. Oh, wow. Right? So whether they know that this was actually a tenet. Yeah, whether that's even a thing. And most Catholics who believe that the bread and wine are symbolic... Didn't know. Did not know. Wow. That the church believes that transubstantiation occurs. Which is weird, because in Catholicism, you have to get confirmed, and you go through classes when you're in school, like a kid. Yeah. And like, you have to, like, take... Like, it's a deal. Yeah, and you know how kids love to study religious texts and really dive in and learn everything. I I was never Catholic, so I don't know how it goes, but... They're all miserable. You've heard stories. Yeah, the kids I knew, I'm not going to say they took it seriously, Mm -hmm. but they certainly were doing it and learning the shit. It wasn't like you just breeze through it and they just put a stamp on your diploma or whatever. You know what I mean? It's a a serious spiritual thing. Uh, At least the kids... With whom I went to school. Yeah, maybe they were unique because that seems odd. I mean, most of the time... The kids I went to school with were certainly not unique. They were just as not special as me. Well, when you... Oh, (laughs) this got really (laughs) sad. (laughs) Nobody's Um, special, Brittany. We're all... We're all, you know... I think we're all special. We're all... We're all similarly mediocre. All of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I mean, when you hear people talk about being raised Catholic and the lengthy services and the the classes and the being abused by the nuns and everything, um, I I don't believe that people were, when they recount these stories, they're not saying they were like diving in deep to the church history and things like that. No, but you you sit, you... I don't know how you missed that one. That's that's a pretty big deal. Maybe they thought they were joking. You know, yeah, the same nuns who beat them are jokesters. Like when about they, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When they wrote the flashcard out for transubstantiation, they put lols <laughs> on the back. <laughs> well, it had the rolling on the side emoji with laughter. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. 
So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I love when Pew has stuff like that. Yeah. I, I love also being quizzed uh, live yes. on the show. Yes. That is a good time. should do that more often. Yes. But I would love to hear what um, Catholic listeners have to say about this. Um, if you were raised Catholic and you were unaware of the teaching on transubstantiation, I mean, wherever you fit on this, we would love to hear well, from you. Uh, at least let me say this, that I hope that you ignore my making fun of the doctrine as much as you ignored its existence growing up. <laughs> Everyone knows that you're a dick, so. I know, it's a feature of my personality. <laughs> All right. Uh, we would love to hear from you, though. 657 464 7609. Of course, you can always email voice memos from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. Support for I Doubt It with Dollamore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like you by way of Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month helps keep the show going and move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you would like to join the ever-growing family of supporters, please visit patreon.com slash idoubtitwithdollamore. Not only does it help keep the show going, but it also helped us get back into a studio space. Yes. And this is going to be just, it's going to make our lives so much easier because there's going to be no um, tearing down, putting up when we have to do a video, when we have to do a podcast. It's just going to be set up all the time. We walk in, we sit down. So we're about 50% of the way through, I would say. Of the remodel, quote unquote. Right, of setting everything up. And um, we're just really happy that we have had your support along the way and we really appreciate it. So if you cannot support us on Patreon or via PayPal, you can shop on Amazon through the dollamore.com slash Amazon link. And that's no extra cost to you. Uh, of course, just Jeff Bezos makes money, but hey, we get a little bit too. So what are you going to do? Right, right. Um, you just have to weigh the benefits. Yeah. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, but please be sure to leave your profanity out of it because your review will not post. Those fuckers are prudes at iTunes. But let's also say this. We appreciate each and every person who takes the time to email us, record a voice memo or a voicemail and send to us. And even if you just silently listen from afar and never interact with us. We appreciate you so much that you take the time out of your day to support us. And um, we love you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It, classically said. Yeah. I, I couldn't add anything to that. So. I know you can't. So don't. Wow. That is fantastic. You, you added. added something. I, I did. I suck. Democracy facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. Whoever said that Republicans were whack job McGee's when it comes to abortion policy? Whoever said that? I don't know, maybe we just extrapolated it based on uh, things said by guys like Steve King. Uh, Steve King. That without rape or incest. Would there even be any population at all? You know, I have to say, though, <laughs> this is one of those moments. Remember when we talked about on the um, episode after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton 
the tweet from Bill O'Reilly that I referenced. Uh, yeah, that's right. This is the cost. This is the price of freedom. Right. He said that uh, Bill O'Reilly said that after the Las Vegas massacre. Yeah. And he, that's what he said. This is the price of freedom. Right. Yeah. And at least Steve King is saying the quiet part out loud. That's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that's really why because Republicans are like even Liz Cheney, the daughter of war criminal Dick Cheney. Has like we got it. This guy's got to go. Blah, blah, blah. Which is odd because yeah. now, now, yeah. I mean, out of Steve' career, Steve King's career, I'm a little tired. Um, ha- <laughs> I thought it was like a, a cross between Steve King and Steve Carell. We don't ha- need to have multiple words. We don't need to have multiple words. Just mash <laughs> them all together. It's fine. <laughs> um, Steve King's career has been built on racism. Yeah, abject, open. Racism. Absolutely. And recently, he has started to get right up to the edge of the line where some people um, have started to be like, whoa, he needs to apologize for well, that. Well, up to a Republican line. He's been right. over the line for normal people yeah. for decades. Thank you for correcting me on yeah. that. Um, but well, I, you, I know what you mean when you say that. I just... I'm tired. Yeah, we. <laughs> you were definitely tired. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but a full work week for the Britney Page. Yeah. But now Liz Cheney is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Too much. Yeah. We don't want to hear him say it. There's actually audio. It's not just like an interview he gave yeah. with the New York Times. Great. This is him talking about the... the the exceptions that so many so many Republicans uh, oppose for abortion that states are starting to impose, which is an exception for the life of the mother of the child, an exception for rape, an exception for incest, which obviously would also be rape. Those are have been long time exceptions to any kind of restrictions on abortion. And Steve King is explaining to a group of donors or supporters or co- uh, co- uh, constituents why that those aren't needed either. All right, I held the ground on principle. Maybe we could have gotten that to the floor if I if I compromised. It wasn't going to move through the Senate anyway, but we still stand on these principles alive. And since then, I started to think, we know the reasons why we don't accept exceptions uh, for the most of us for rape and incest, because it's not the baby's fault. But there's another thing. I started to wonder about this. What if it was okay, and what if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population of the world left if we did that? <laughs> Considering all the wars and all the rape and pillage that's taken place and whatever happened in culture after society, I know I can't certify that they're not part of a product of that. And I'd like to think every one of the lives of us are as precious as any other life. And that's our measure. Human life cannot be measured. It is the measure itself against which all things are weighed. So. Seems really, really rational. Yeah. Um, I mean, c- come on. The, the population of the earth wouldn't be what it is today without incest or rape. Mm-hmm. Goddamn. I mean, come on. I mean, he's standing up there saying something that I guess I just don't understand the thesis of it. You know what I mean? So is he saying that rape is like a necessary evil that we need to like keep around because life is produced from it you know like what yeah, is i don't know what is the ultimate like thesis here because well, one one would be that his family is filled with incestuous relationships and rape because he said oh, look i can't even i can't even say i'm not a product from that down to blah blah 
He said that. Right. I mean, he didn't add the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he might as well have. Um, I, I know that he's using this as a line of argument against the exceptions in abortion for cases of rape or incest. But I don't see how it's an argument um, against those exceptions. I mean, you can say, well, births have occurred as a result of rape. Of course. Uh, yeah, we are aware of that. Thank you for refreshing our memory on how life works. But the statement, without rape or incest, would there be any population at all? I mean, come on, dude. Well, the answer to that is yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, very confused about the line of argument here. (laughs) Um, I I also, I'm repulsed by the argument that's continuous from the Republican Party about using the word baby... In place of clump of cells, loosely gathered clump of cells with no heartbeat, with no nervous system. That's not a baby. It's, come on. There, there isn't a baby there upon conception. I mean, I know that that's not the most offensive thing here, but it's certainly come the fuck on. When are we going to get over this nonsense that, you know, hours after conception, you've got a baby on your hands? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he specified a time frame um, in in which the hypothetical abortion would be taking place. Um, but obviously, that is a tactic that is used yeah. to make it a more emotionally charged. Because if you're using baby, then, well, people don't want to hurt babies. Right. Right. Well, it's also, we know this guy's politics. This guy's a no abortion ever. The day after you get pregnant, no, that's a baby now. That's for sure his politics. But it's it's also frustrating because these are it's just the same arguments over and over again. And it's like no one is going to be convinced until like something happens personally to them. That's right. And for for Steve King to take the position that having an abortion after a rape is punishment to the baby, you know, I mean, I just don't find it useful for him to be talking about this. Um, and, and this isn't, uh, I'm not making the argument that men can't have abortion, uh, opinions about abortions because they don't have them. That's not what I'm saying, but, um, I, it's a, it's a trauma. You're talking about a trauma. Yeah. You're talking about a traumatic event and rape and incest, not just getting pregnant. Right. Yeah. Well, depends on your experience, I guess. Yeah. Um, but to talk about it. As though, listen, in response to your traumatic situation, you're going to be in a situation now where you need to carry the baby that you didn't want that was forcibly put inside you in a violent way to term. And then you can either keep it or put it up for adoption. And both of those are also difficult and you know depending on what state you live in you might have to have a custody agreement it's just this idea and it's similar to what it's similar to what's been talking been talked about with um food stamps recently for immigrants right which um, we're going to get into today yeah government benefits it's this idea that like you made your bed lie in it right and this thing happened to you you got raped you didn't choose it but now that's your identity and you're going to be forced to live with it. Yeah. In the way that I see fit. Even though it didn't happen to me. You know? Yeah. It's just a weird position. Like, I would feel very uncomfortable lording over somebody and taking that position and saying that to them. 
you know. But when you come from his particular evangelical tradition, it's that's the way of the world. That we, I'm here to impose my level, my system of morality upon everybody else. Yeah. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to have you live by the same standards I claim to live by. Yeah. Well, in the I'm not here to judge, please. Yeah. We, we know what's happening here. Right, you know, right, right, right. Love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Love the person, hate everything about them. That's you know, we get exactly it. Exactly. Right. Okay. We get it. That's Steve King to a T. Mm-hmm. No, I love black people. I just want them to go back to Africa because they've never contributed anything to civilization, which he said. Yeah. I don't know. Like going, on MSNBC, right? Yeah, he well, yeah, he didn't say it. Go back to Africa, but he certainly said that white people. Mm-hmm. How could it be argued that any other group of people have contributed more to civilization than white people? I mean, come on, this guy is a fucking. He's a loose cannon only because he tells the truth and speaks what the large portion of Republicans already believe. They just don't say it in such stark language as him. Mm-hmm. They soft pedal it to the hordes. Anyway, that's Steve King, everybody. Good times. Um, Donald Trump was getting on a plane. Heading, uh, he's on his vacation right now, you know. Great. Getting on a plane, headed to uh, one of his rallies. And he talked about gun violence. And seriously, here we are going on three years in. And I am still shocked at the shit that comes out of this guy's mouth still am shocked by the level of support he's maintained over these three years almost three years here he is talking about wanting to reinstitute institutionalizing people with mental illness because of the gun debate We're going to look at that very closely, and we're looking at the whole gun situation. I do want people to remember the words mental illness. These people are mentally ill, and nobody talks about that. But these are mentally ill people, and people have to start thinking about it. I think we have to start building institutions again because, you know, if you look at the 60s and 70s, so many of these institutions were closed, and the people were just allowed to go onto the streets. And that was a terrible thing for our country. They closed them. Cities couldn't afford them. And they closed them. I mean, I can tell you in New York, they closed a lot of them. And the people went out. They went out onto the streets. And it's a terrible thing. But a lot of our conversation has to do with the fact that we have to open up institutions. We can't let these people be on the streets. It's just disgusting. Well, there's so there's hints of truth in there, um, like historically speaking, but he's missing the lessons of the era, right? So deinstitutionalization is what occurred in the 50s and 60s when long-term care facilities yeah. were closed. Now, this happened mostly because of the like treatment that was found in these facilities horrible also treatment also many of the patients uh were being held and they were able to live in the community right but because of the stigma of mental illness and mental health at the time um which was terrible right, right. Uh, it's still I mean, not it's great sti- today it but still exists imagine what it was 80 years ago right um 
there there wasn't really a place for them, right? But once it was found that they were being mistreated, that many people were being held um, in situations that weren't necessary, right? Because they could be in the community, they could rejoin the community. Um, then this trend toward deinstitutionalization occurred. And yes, they closed many of these psychiatric hospitals. And yes, it was not done in the best way. Many people were left to go to the streets, not getting the care that they needed. Okay. There is some truth in what he's saying. But to say that the answer is to reopen all of these large institutions and start like funneling people away... I, I, well, just a hidden, dirty secret is what, the way he looks at it. Well, the first thing is that, and again, and like I don't know how many times this needs to be said, but people with mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. It is just not a fact to say that there is a connection here um, or or that, that someone who has a mental illness is likely to become a mass shooter, you know? That's right. Um. In response to this, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, released a statement, and I'm going to read part of it because they offer some actual solutions for Donald Trump to focus on, right? With his voice, with his power, with his ability, these are the things that he could be focusing on rather than things that uh, do not help, the things that contribute to stigma, right? R- rather than a first half of the 20th century solution rather than a 1950s outlook. Let's look at this from a 21st century perspective. Right. So this is part of the statement quote today too often people languish in emergency rooms and law enforcement officers are responding to avoidable crises because community based mental health services aren't there for people who need them. Instead of focusing on the past, we urge the administration to focus on improving access to mental health care. There are common sense approaches that we know are effective and that can be implemented now to improve access to mental health services. We must, one, promote early intervention. Half of all mental illnesses begin by age 14. 75% begin by age 24. Getting help early, such as with coordinated specialty care for a first episode of psychosis, results in better outcomes and lowered costs. Two, invest in better access to quality care. For example, certified community behavioral health clinics are helping people get care when and where they need it. Congress needs to extend funding for for this pilot program and expand it nationwide. Three, Divert people from the criminal justice system. Jails and prisons shouldn't be today's mental health institutions. Instead, we need readily available crisis response and intensive mental health services for people experiencing severe symptoms. Okay? Those are... So they're not just saying, no, you're wrong. They're saying, look, fucking, you're wrong. Here's what needs to be done. They're giving solutions. They're offering up options of policy to put into place. Right, which I think is helpful very it's responsible and a lot of times you don't see that right you see a lot of criticism for certain positions um but you you don't see okay here's what you could actually be saying and i think it's so important that they did this not only because one in five people have a mental illness but the way that donald trump is speaking about these people right your sisters and brothers your husbands and wives yeah your friends your family your co-workers many people that you know, it stigmatizes and it marginalizes them 
to hear that they should be put away, right? And when he talks about reopen the institutions, he's he's not talking about funding for community-based services. He's not talking about that, right? He's trying to make a point that people need to be put away. That's right. No, he's talking about imprisoning people just in a different way. So it's very sad because he's focusing on the wrong things. Shocking. And he's using language that is very stigmatizing against a large segment of the population. Well, he's doing what Republicans do, which is obfuscate. They're, they're, they're playing three-card Monty with the gun debate. It is... I've been thinking a lot about this. And Republicans, are they're going to stonewall by not providing viable solutions to amend the situation that we have, amend the policy to actually impact the number of mass shootings and massacres that we have. Republicans are going to stonewall themselves out of a bargaining position on gun policy. They're going to stonewall for so long in opposition to the lion's share, like 90% of people are in America are in, in, in favor of universal background checks. And Republicans are, are opposed to that. They are resistant to that. What they're going to do is they're going to stonewall for so long that the American people are going to get fucking fed up. And then all of a sudden there's going to be this appetite for a constitutional amendment. So th- they, they resist incrementalism toward progress, then it's just going to be a fucking, okay, we're going to pull the plug here and there's going to be a constitutional amendment. There's just no forward-looking strategy on the part of Republicans that I can see at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to fucking find out about it. I mean, it might take 20 years. But what what will they have gained as a political part? I don't know that they'll be around in 20 years in the current form. Because of, you know, the just the population shift we're going through with baby boomers dying and millennials coming up. But uh, it's it's remarkable what we're witnessing. I also I have I've worked in an inpatient psychiatric hospital for almost six months now. And that's not like a significant period of time. But I've been there five days a week, eight hours a day for almost six months. Six months longer than any of us. And so to hear people who... Many of us. Right. To (laughs) to hear people who don't have as much experience working directly with severe and chronically mentally ill patients is really frustrating, right? Um, And it's not to say that, that people can't have opinions about things that they haven't personally experienced. I'm not one of those people. But I... I at least wish that people would, if they haven't had experience with certain things. Listen to the experts. Yeah, listen to people who have, you know, and and try to look for information that will help you on your path to being knowledgeable about things. You know, it does seem to me to be one of the, it's one of those fields that people, based on whatever, they've got an aunt who has a personality disorder or whatever, that they, they take on their own opinion as though they're an expert. Mm-hmm. In this particular arena, in your particular field, you've got laymen on on Facebook mm-hmm. acting like they know as much or more than you, who's gone through years and years of education, higher education, graduate level education, and training. It just it's fucking weird. No one would say to a to a to an Apple engineer 
that they've got it on lock. They understand the, the the electrical components and the circuit boards and the and the chips. Yeah, they wouldn't think they know more than them, but they act like they know more than you. They act like they know more than Alan Francis, two time guest on the show, Doctor Alan Francis, Doctor Alan Francis, everybody, <laughs> friend of the show. Yeah. Um. Yes, and and I I certainly do not know everything, right? Um. But being in this. Yeah, but you seek out experts to find out the things you don't know. Right. But being in this environment um, has taught me a lot. And I actually found an op-ed from a psychiatrist who works in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And I posted this on Facebook and to my Twitter page. So you may have seen it there. But um, I want to read a quote from it because it really resonated with me. Quote, I won't sugarcoat what it's like to work on psychiatric units. There are moments of tension and conflict. There are moments when patients rave in the grips of psychosis, scream at the locked doors, throw chairs, harm themselves, or threaten staff members. Indeed, there are moments when I'm afraid. But in my experience, these flashes of turmoil are far less common than the moments of inspiration. Yeah. And that's really what it is to work in this environment. It has been very challenging. At times, it's very scary. Um, I had to get trained in nonviolent crisis intervention to be prepared to handle um, hands-on situations where I may need to protect myself. Nerve-wracking, which right? Se- which seemed to happen every day, not with you, but every day sometime on the hospital floor, on the units, it happens. Yeah, it's not uncommon. But that's also not to say that the patients are violent, Right. Um, yeah, if you have hundreds of patients in, in, in the hospital and one acts up, that's that's a scant percentage. I mean, it, it does happen, right, if, where people are ass- assaultive. But a lot of it is because of a lack of emotional regulation and not having the, the skills that other people have. Also, not having early intervention like exactly. the steps you just read. Exactly. If 50% of, of cases show up before the age of 14 and the lion's share of the rest show up before the age of 24 or whatever the numbers were, mm-hmm. if they were to get early intervention likely they wouldn't end up in the situation they are or or at least there's a chance of it right well and even go back further right and republicans hate this <laughs> because the expectation is let's say you're born into a low-income family uh you have one or fewer parents you are expected to go to school do your homework on your own. Yeah. Uh, figure things out. Start working. Um, and then when you turn 18, magically, you are supposed to have figured it out and know how to be self-sufficient regardless of what you came from. No. It's just not realistic. It's not realistic. And if they are not willing to support young people, right? Most of the people that get government assistance, food stamps, are children. That's right. The vast majority. They're the ultimate recipients of it. And they still get upset about that. Yeah. You know? So it's very frustrating to hear the discussion about personal responsibility for adults when really it's meant for children as well. You're explaining how America deals with policy going all the way back to slavery. That, oh, we don't have slavery anymore? All right. Millions of slaves. You're free now. Well, what, what do we do? Hey, man, that's your problem. Right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Same thing when they deinstitutionalized. All right, we're letting y'all out. Oh, well, shit, what, what do we do? Hey, 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's on you. You're explain. You're. It's the same exact thing, time after time after time, and we never learn from our mistakes. Right. And if you come from poverty, yes, it's the same thing. Yes, because right? you're, you're a nuisance. You're a burden. Right. That's a fucking problem. But you must be born. But you. But you have. That's exactly right. <laughs> Going back to the Steve King. Thing. Right. You must be born, though. Uh. <laughs> it's just so nonsensical. I mean, it's. It's very frustrating. Well, it does. It leads us into the next thing, which is this immigration argument, the, the, the this new policy of Donald Trump's absolutely, without a doubt, fucking racist based Stephen Miller, just come out of his fucking head. This is the embodiment of Stephen Miller's ideas about immigration. That they're going to curtail. Benefits for non-citizens like food stamps. For I tell you what, here's an NBC news package. Couple of minutes, she'll explain it. We'll talk about it. The Trump administration introduced a new rule today that makes it harder for low-income immigrants to stay here in America. NBC News's Jane Tim joins me now. And Jane, what is this rule exactly, and how does it specifically target lower-income immigrants? So American law already says that people who are likely to become dependent or a public charge of Mm -hmm. the government can be denied an immigration status, be it when you have a work visa and you're applying for a green card, or if you've been in the country for a while legally and you want to apply for citizenship, mm-hmm. those are the people where you can, your, your ability to pay for your own bills can come into effect. But the Trump administration realized that the board's public charge, the ability to be a public charge, was not defined in federal law. So they went through and defined it by essentially saying that if you receive like sort of non-monetary public benefits, things like health care or food stamps, things that help lower income families that are struggling or having moments of hard times, that those things could actually work against you on your application, on your immigration application. So if you've had a green card and you've had, you know, food stamps for a year after someone in your family or your household lost employment, your green card application could be denied because of this. Wow. When does this take effect? And are there any exemptions or does it just, if you're a low income immigrant who's in one of these situations, you got to watch. So it kicks in in two months, okay. uh, October 15th, I think. And it does, there are some exemptions. So there are exemptions for service members. Okay. The Department of Homeland Security said, you know, some of our, our lower income employees are actually on food stamps and we don't want their citizenship status to be at risk. Um, it also is uh, exempt from pregnant women and children. Certain benefits that are sort of emergency benefits, okay. like emergency Medicaid is exempt as well. But for the most part, it's pretty broad. So I know it's the Migration Policy Institute. That's an immigration think tank. I know they took a look at this and sort of assessed uh, how it would impact our immigration system. And what are they saying about this? Because I, I know this is a rule that's been in the works for quite some time. Yeah. So they first pr- produced a, an idea of what they wanted this to look like a year ago. And MPI looked into it and found that it could have really big effects, that it could dramatically change who gets approved as an immigrant here in the country. Whereas a lot of Latin American immigrants might be approved before this rule, this is going to gear towards wealthier European immigrants. And this, your ability to pay your bills has, on the bottom line, always been a consideration in your immigration status. But this just makes it a lot more. Your credit score can be considered. Your you, It's a lot more like applying for a mortgage than a lot of other things in the American immigration system used to be. Yeah, taking the, that phrase, uh, public charge, and really defining it, narrowing down to some real specifics there. Yeah, regulations can make a big difference. All right, Jane Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. 
So in response to this new rule, the director of the National Immigration Law Center said, quote, this news is a cruel new step toward weaponizing programs that are intended to help people by making them instead a means of separating families and sending immigrants and communities of color one message. You are not welcome here. Right. This is a wealth standard. It's a wealth litmus test. The other element here that I really haven't heard anybody talk about and that you talked about to me, Brittany, and that, that was that if two parents who happen to not be American citizens, yet whose children are, these are typically people coming across the southern border, they are not allowed to get benefits that will benefit the American citizen. Therefore, they will never have a chance at a green card, which further means that they could be deported at any time, sent away while well, your your access to the country is no longer um, going to be supported. And then what, what happens with their kids? Well, they go with the parents. This is racism, is what this is. Well, and, and under the new rule, um, green card and visa applicants can be denied not merely for being, quote, pi- primarily dependent on the government for subsistence, as in the past, but if they are likely to need public assistance, quote, at any time. Yes. Um, the regulations also add a new requirement for income and financial assets. Advocates say that it will make it difficult for immigrants earning less than 250% of the federal poverty guidelines. This is more than $64,000 for a family of four to get green cards. Although the administration argues that the limit is closer to 125% of poverty. Well, here, listen, uh, Yamiche Alcindor from PBS uh, interviewed a Who lady. Who is awesome, by she, the way. She is awesome. Yeah. She interviewed a lady from the Bipartisan Policy Centers um, about this to kind of explain what the other side of this is, not just the straight news reporting, but likely what are going to be the ramifications. Here's that. Um, talk to me about how this will impact um, immigrants and the legal immigration process in the United States and who will be most impacted by this new rule. Sure. So the, the rule applies to those who are applying to get green cards in the United States. Um, and so one of the longstanding issues in immigration law, as you mentioned, is whether or not someone would become become a public charge. That has been broadly defined as somebody who would be mostly dependent on the government. It's a It's a criteria that has been... I'd say used sparingly, uh, over the, especially over the last couple of decades, but it has been a priority of this administration to implement. So it would look at whether or not uh, people who are applying to be green card holders have used public benefits that they might be eligible for. It would apply to current immigrants or citizens who are looking to sponsor others to come on green cards, and it would apply to some non-immigrants who are looking to extend or change their status as well. What can you tell us about how much immigrants use public benefits in comparison to native-born Americans? So we did a literature review a couple of years ago about about who uses public benefits. And what we found is general individual immigrants use benefits uh, less often and at lower rates uh, than U.S. citizens do. But some immigrant-headed households, particularly those with U.S. citizen children, may use more of them because the children are eligible for benefits that maybe the immigrant parents are not. 
Critics of this new rule say that this is the Trump administration again unfairly targeting immigrants. There are talks that there are going to be swift legal challenges to this. How does this new rule um, really factor into how the Trump administration has overall used its immigration agenda to target different groups? Well, particularly its regulatory agenda has been about legal immigrants. And one of the things that we have seen is that a lot of the uh, regulatory changes that have been implemented have been about uh, reducing eligibility for legal immigrants immigration, uh, reducing the number of people who can qualify for legal immigration or slowing down the legal immigration process. You said the, the term public charge has been kind of implemented and enforced sparingly. Tell us a little bit about the history of the term public charge and how certain immigrant groups have been um, subject to, to that term and what it's meant to overall and, and in the years coming. Well, the idea of preventing the poor or paupers from immigrating has been around basically since the beginning of the republic. Initially, when the United States was created, states had control over who could immigrate and they would look for people who they thought might not be eligible to able to work or support them. Themselves. In the 1800s, Congress passed the first sort of uniform immigration rules, the Chinese Exclusion Act, that also included this public charge rule. But over the years, it has been very subjectively enforced. So, for example, during the Ellis Island days, they would look at whether or not they, somebody, they thought somebody was physically able of performing work. Um, did they have family members already here or sponsors? Did they bring any money with them? So it was sort of on the fly. Uh, this has been a priority of this administration to get a public charge rule published since the administration came in. Uh, an executive order was issued very early in the presidency asking for this to be done. Um, so it's it's new in that we don't know exactly how it's going to be implemented. It's still a relatively subjective standard, especially that prospective looking part. Is an immigrant likely to become a public charge? That's where it's a little more iffy because they're going to look at things like, does the immigrant have a work history? What's their education level? Um, do they have any health issues that might affect whether or not they would uh, become a public charge? We have to kind of see how that would be implemented. But we've already seen some of this because consulates overseas have been have been implementing some of this through the visa review process over the last year already. So this is obviously an effort to limit immigration, yes. but also the use of public benefits. L- l- let's also say this. It is an effort to, to curtail the numbers of legal immigrants. Right. That's key. Yeah. This isn't about refugees or undocumented migrants. This is just legal immigration they're trying to cut down the numbers on. Well, and I, I, I want Republicans to just stop talking about the American dream. Yeah. I, I just want to... Shut it, the fuck up. You're right. I want it to stop because <laughs> this idea that you can come here with nothing but the clothes on your back and you can become Jeff Bezos... Yeah. You know, please, please stop. All you got to do is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. No, that's not how it happens. Right. That's not how Donald Trump did it. Uh, That's how that's that's how very few people do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, You look into the histories of successful people and they have been supported and helped in many different ways, oftentimes financially and lucky. And lucky. And lucky. Go back and listen to our bonus episode with Professor Robert Frank from Cornell. Absolutely. Uh, it's a very important episode, a very important topic, luck. Um, and our ability to recognize our own luck in our own stories makes yeah. us more aware and empathetic for people who aren't as lucky. And, I mean, and, the, and the myth of meritocracy, th- the rest of the title of the book. Yes. Yes. So, so listen, 
Of course, every nation has the ability to say who can and can't ultimately become a naturalized citizen. It's not up for debate. For me, you know what this says to me? This really rings home that uh, that elections have consequences. And uh, we lost this one. We showed up enough to have 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. But because of our wacky electoral college system, it didn't matter. But we knew the rules going in. We had to win these certain states. We didn't. We picked the wrong fucking candidate who didn't campaign like she wanted to win. First of all. But having said that, this is antithetical to the ethos of America. You know, Ronald Reagan talking about the shining city on the hill. Mm -hmm. This is a curtailment of black and brown immigration into the United States. Remember when uh, Kirsten Nielsen was grilled after Donald Trump made his shithole comments. Mm -hmm. And why aren't we bringing in more people from countries like Norway? What's the what's the difference between a country like Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras and Norway? Haiti? Why do we want people from Haiti here? Why do we want these people from all these shithole countries here? We should have more people from places like Norway. Now, what are the differences between a place like Haiti and Norway? Quote, unquote, President Donald J. Trump. Right. This is an extension of... This is the the manifestation of racism in policy. This is putting in place restrictions on how many brown people become citizens of the United States. And there's, listen, this Ken Cuccinelli, which we're getting ready to play, trying to explain it away in his fucking lawyerly way. Former Attorney General of the state of Virginia. This is him explaining exactly about the public charge immigration rule. I'm only going to play it for as long as I can take it, but just to give you a flavor for where he goes with it. And then we've got subsequent clips of him going out on the media track, making, um, trying to make it palatable to the American people and just digging himself a hole because fundamentally, this is racist. Fundamentally, this isn't palatable to the American people who do believe in the American dream who do believe in a classless society where anyone can make it, where we want to help those lesser than us in a financial situation, who do want to help people, who need the hand up. Generations of immigrants have strengthened the foundation of our country by, and making positive contributions today, and we expect that to continue in the future. Through faithful execution of our nation's long-standing laws, all right, I'm going to pause it there. God damn, it didn't take long. Here's the thing that the, the, the Trump administration or Trump sycophants have been very good at doing. They become very adept at this. And that is saying all the right words and then doing the unconscionable. Talking about maintaining the American dream. Sticking to the ideals that built America. All of this stuff that you would expect to hear from Washington types. And then turning around 
and violating their charge. Whether it be putting in Rick Perry as an energy secretary. Or any of these other cabinet positions. Betsy DeVos. They, they, they talk the language. But they're only there to tear down. To break the system. President Trump's public charge inadmissibility rule better ensures that immigrants are able to successfully support themselves as they seek opportunity here in America. Throughout our history, Americans and legal immigrants have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps there it is. to pursue their dreams and the opportunity of this great nation. <clears throat> as President Trump delivers on his promise to uphold the rule of law, this administration is promoting our shared history and encouraging the core values needed to make the American dream a reality. And with that, I'm happy to take some questions. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Cuccinelli. As you know, uh, the primary focus of the president throughout his presidency has been on illegal immigration. The focus of what you just outlined in this proposed rule is on legal immigration. Yes. Why the change in focus? Uh, this is not a change in focus. This rule goes all the way back to executive orders from early in 2017. Uh, it's been a long, arduous effort. Uh, if you take a look at the fully uh, printed item, it'll... This has been a long, arduous effort. This has been in the works for a long time due to the machinations of Stephen Miller. The racist, the white supremacist, Stephen Miller who worked for the racist, the white supremacist, Jeff Sessions, prior to Donald Trump. The friend of Richard Spencer when they were in college at Duke together. This is all part of a pattern of setting this up. When they put in executive orders in 2017, it's all leading to this type of policy. A step-by-step raising the temperature so the frog in the water doesn't know that it's being fucking boiled to death. Coupled with everything else that we eh, don't feel so much outrage over anymore. Elections fucking matter. We may have dropped the ball in 2016, but God damn it, we better not drop the ball in 2020. Lives hang in the balance. That's all I'm going to play from uh, this dipshit on that clip. That same day, well, this, is, this goes on for another three and a half minutes of Ken Cuccinelli explaining the public charge immigration rule. Mm-hmm. He never really explains it. He never really answers any questions. He obfuscates and gives his confusing lawyerly language. But he went on Morning Edition with Rachel Martin. It's a PBS program. 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 I get carried away with the, with the, with the language, Brittany. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where you may have heard him reword the poem of Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Mm-hmm. He rewords it. And then we're going to play after that. Aaron Burnett talking to him about rewording it because I didn't reword it. I'm not rewriting poetry because it's all about making the situation as fucking confusing as possible so people don't understand it 
Luckily, we have media like us who can break it down the timeline and make it more understandable for people. But here is Rachel Martin with Ken Cuccinelli. This is part of President Trump keeping his promises. I mean, this is not new. Or I'm going to stop there, too. That's not an argument. Just because this is part of Donald Trump keeping his promises doesn't make it right. That's not a justification for what's happening. It's barely an explanation of what's happening. This is part of President Trump keeping his promises. I mean, this is not new or a surprise. This grows out of executive early 2017 that have uh, led to this rule. What immigrants are welcome to the United States if these immigrants are not? Uh, all immigrants who can stand on their own two feet, be self-sufficient, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, again, as in the American tradition. My Italian-Irish heritage looks back at that. Most people in America look back at that. And um, and that's what we expect going forward. This is a 140-year-old tradition in this country legally, and we President Trump's leadership, and he intends to carry this forward, and this rule will be a, an important part of that effort. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That, that plaque was put on the Statue of Liberty at almost the same time as the first public charge law was passed. Very interesting timing. Although that right there is some fucking grade A bullshit. What just happened? And we're going to talk about it and we're going to play Aaron Burnett's interview with him where she calls him on it. And then he tries to say what just happened didn't happen. But listen to how that went down. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, They certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That that plaque was put on the Statue of Liberty at almost the same time as the first public charge law was passed. There's, Very interesting. There's two things here. One is, wouldn't you agree that Emma, Emma Lazarus's words are part of the American dream? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Absolutely, he says. Give me your tired, your poor, those who can stand on their own two feet. So he does rewrite it. He does represent the poem as it's not. He does represent the ideas in the poem as they are not. And then he tries to put together two things that when the poem was written and put on the plaque and placed at the foot of the Statue of Liberty, that, oh, you know, it's a year right around the same time as the public charge rule was written, as though Emma Lazarus had something to do with that. Which um, a Princeton professor, Esther Shore, who wrote an acclaimed 2006 biography of Emma Lazarus, she says that she, you know, has obviously studied, wrote this book about her, looked through all of her letters and things like that, and she cannot find anywhere in Emma Lazarus's writing or letters where she mentions 
anything about that because I believe he's referring to the Immigration Act of 1882 um, and the Chinese Exclusion Act was also passed that year. Right. Um, and there's there's no mention of that in her letters. So he's trying to, huh, that's interesting, like float that idea out there that's right. without any evidence for it. Combining two things that are completely unrelated, both, right. both in time and also in attitude. When again, you can just ask like scholars about that wait you don't rely on experts this is the trump administration Brittany. yeah so i believe that's what he was referring to i'm because i'm reading an interview that was done in slate um with that author with that professor yeah and she said that she could she never found her commenting on those pieces of legislation yeah rachel martin continues you mentioned the american dream is is built on this idea that this is a place where you can come and build a life it's it's where you can come there are There are so many stories, as you know, of people coming to this country with nothing, who may need assistance from the resources that are legally made available to them. This this rule appears to change the definition of the American dream. Uh, It certainly does not change what makes America exceptional, and it doesn't change the definition of the American dream. Um, We invite people to come here and join us as a privilege. No one has a right to become an American who isn't born here as an American. America has generously opened its doors for many years, and we continue to do so. We swore in more new American citizens last year than in the four years before that, and that pattern will be continued this year. I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I didn't mishear you. I thought I thought you heard you said you say that no American can be here who isn't born in America. Did you misspeak? No, 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 you did not hear that correctly. It is a privilege to become an American, not a right for anybody who is not uh, already an American citizen. That's what I was referring to. And this is a privilege we've offered to people all around the world for the entire duration of our history. But that privilege has starts with certain expectations. And for the last 140 years, among those expectations is that the people who will come here will not become a burden on the taxpayers and the government. And again, that doesn't seem like too much to ask as we open our doors currently to more than a million new people a year, uh, that they not become a burden on an already, frankly, overburdened and bankrupt welfare system. And there it is. On an already burdened and almost bankrupt welfare system, which is fucking not just not true, not factual, not reality. What the Trump administration is saying, what Stephen Miller is saying, what Donald Trump is saying, what Ken Cuccinelli is saying, is if you're rich, come on. Come on in. If you're wealthy, goddamn, you got a seat at the table, brother. If you're well-educated, goddamn, get in here. But if you're lesser, if you're not white, eh, we don't so much have a seat at the table for you. Ultimately, that is what they're saying here. Think about how many people from your own lineage, countless in mine, who didn't have means, but only by luck of birth happened to be Americans. And think about how many people were born without means who rose to greatness because of a little education, whether it be a generation or two, people make a difference. 
whether it be through innovation and invention or the arts, whatever the means, because you're wealthy, because you are educated, doesn't make you better or more valuable to our society. And from an economic standpoint, there are all kinds. There are millions of spots for jobs in America that Americans won't fucking do. Completely being disregarded and ignored by this administration, which wants more immigration from places like Norway. But it's particularly insulting to have this kind of rhetoric come from Donald Trump, who was gifted millions of dollars. Yes, hundreds a, of millions. As a very young child, and, um, you know, his dad was funneling money into an account for him from the properties that he owned, That's from right. the rent that was being paid. You know, like, we really need a fucking lecture from this guy. It's, it's insulting. Um, why don't you try to... Put yourself in other people's shoes. I mean, I understand that that's difficult when you've been so out of touch your whole life. You know, 70 years old, it's not going to change now. Um, <laughs> but for these other people that are propping him up, you know, I, I would love to know their life stories. Yeah. Is is this an issue of just unaccounted for luck? They're not acknowledging their own luck. They're not acknowledging their own privilege. And I know you bring up the word privilege and people start shaking in their boots, getting real upset because you feel like you're taking away their uh, achievements and the struggles yeah, that they've had. You people know? can fuck off. Both of us come from humble beginnings. You came from hashtag raised by wolves seriously and you still know that you have privilege. Yeah, I can't imagine being someone that says, oh yeah, you should pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, neither of my parents graduated college. No, I mean, Neither of your parents graduated high school. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> My dad got his GED in prison the same year that I graduated high school. Um, he's been incarcerated for like over 15 years. Um, I had to start working as soon as possible to help my mom with the bills. I wasn't worried about school. That was not my focus. I had to start trying to figure out how to get into college with my terrible GPA. I finally figured things out once I was in college because I was able to thrive because my life was no longer chaotic and filled with trauma. Um, and I was helped by so many people. I cannot tell you. People on the outside would look at you and say, ah, she pulled herself up by the bootstraps. <laughs> Bullshit. Though. I've actually received messages from people that I went to high school with who have said things like that to me, that they're like telling their class about my story and how amazing it is. And well, it's, it's like, not to say you didn't work hard, but it's not to say that it was all you. Right. I'm like, please don't make it out to be that I did this alone because I didn't, you know? Yeah. Also, I'm not completely put together. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's not go too crazy. I mean, goddamn, you're a podcaster. Seriously. Things aren't really going great. Lots of problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just, I think it's very, very unfortunate, especially if you come from adversity to then turn around and betray your fellow brothers in adversity, you know, brothers and sisters in adversity yeah. and say, I did this myself. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, you did not. Stop. 
So let's 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 wrap here. Let, let let's listen to him being grilled. Really, listen. Listen, listen. Uh, listen here. Look at uh, there are certain good characters on the CNN. Oh my God! I thought that you were about to say the Trump administration. No, <laughs> and what I was like, fuck? "Who are you thinking Have of? Have you met me? What are you about to say?" No, this is Ken Cuccinelli on with Aaron Burnett, who one is an adept interviewer. She's a listener. She's she's an active participant. She's present when she interviews. She does what one might refer to as kill it. Yeah, she's also an economist. She's a fucking brainiac nerd. So you can't get shit by her. Listen to this exchange in the middle of a, like a 10-minute interview. This is just a, f- a couple of minutes of her talking and calling him out on this uh, interview that we just listened to with Rachel Martin about the Emma Lazarus uh, section of the poem. I mean, you, you say this is about self-sufficiency and you say that proudly. You heard me play yeah. you. And also, might I add, I, the clip has stopped and Jesse's talking now, just in case you weren't sure. <laughs> Alert, alert. <laughs> Listen to him lie and obfuscate and be just, just, I mean, come on. Douche chill. I mean, you, you say this is about self-sufficiency and you say that proudly. You heard me yeah. play you uh, this morning uh, when you quoted the Emma Lazarus poem on the Statue of Oh, Liberty. I wasn't quoting it. I was answering a question. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. But you were giving your version of what you thought the poem should say, right? No. S- no, I was not. You said, give me your tired and your poor who can question. stand on. I'm not I- rewriting poetry. Okay, I'm well, in, what I'm you said is, give follows. me your... T- uh, uh, he's denying it. Well, let's just listen. Let, let's, let's readdress what it, what what happened. I, no, I wasn't rewriting poetry. No, I didn't restate it. What? That's not what happened. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Huh. Kind of seems a little different than what he's representing now. Not shocking that he's a fucking liar. That he's a paid liar for the Donald Trump administration. Tired and you're poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. I just played you saying it. Right. I listened. Okay. Okay. What's so I'm just question? making sure you're not just putting said. Okay. So obviously the actual poem is quite different. I'm going to read it. Right. I was answering a question. I wasn't writing poetry, Aaron. Don't don't change the facts. I'm not changing the facts. You, I'm just you're saying. You're twisting this like no, no, everybody no, no, else no, no. on the left no, no, has no, done all day today. No, 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 because I think it's today. important. You're saying. You're twisting the facts. You're doing what every other person on the left has done all day. Uh, Shall we? Shall we do what everybody on the left has done all day? Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet. I I do want to say, though, so some people have, some liberals have taken issue with this characterization and this focus. Well, they're wrong. But it isn't the issue, right? I mean, he's trying to act like Aaron Burnett is accusing him of putting a new plaque on the Statue of Liberty. Like, that's not what she's saying that's right? right she's not saying that he went out there with a hammer and a nail i don't know how engraving works that's very apparent and um <laughs> did some sort of editing and adjusting to the plaque you know what i mean all of the statues in ancient rome and greece were made with a hammer and a nail yeah, yeah. i mean that's what i assume and so <laughs> wow. no one is accusing him of doing that they are just saying that when he was speaking 
he quoted the poem in his own words, gave it his own meaning. And that's just a fact, dude. Yeah, like, stop right. trying to make this something it isn't. Well, again, it's it's a pattern of trying to confuse the situation. Right. And make it about, this is what the left liberals have been doing all day long. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Come on, dude. You know what the fuck we're talking it about. It also gives him a chance to burn like 60 seconds so he doesn't have That's to right. account for anything. Yeah, he, he knows they only got eight minutes or so. Yeah. And he, you know, here he goes. He's it- like, I'm going to burn some time being a prick. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> That's the plan. That it's very important to be able to stand on your own two feet. A lot yes. of people may support you and respect your saying that. But the poem doesn't say that. Right, the poem that's I on didn't the Statue of the Liberty. Poem. I didn't bring up the poem. Doesn't well, matter. An NPR reporter did, and now you have. Okay, I didn't bring it up. I'll answer okay. your substantive intelligence. So questions. I'm going to give Please you a substantive intelligence. Okay, Who, however it came up, you said, "Give me your tired and your poor." Okay, who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge? That's what you right. said. I just played it. The poem reads, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of the teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Wretched, poor refuse, right? That's what the poem says America's supposed to stand for. So what do you think America stands for? Well, of course, that poem was referring back to people coming from Europe where they had class-based societies. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. Well, of course, this poem was referring to immigration from Europe. This is a completely different situation than we're dealing with now. We're dealing with immigration from South America and Central America and South North America. We're not dealing with immigration from other European countries like Norway, like the president wants to have. This is different. It's a different ball game. This is racism. This is white supremacy put into policy. And the person who is who is enacting it right now is Ken Cuccinelli. Where people were considered wretched if they weren't in the right class. And it was introduced, it was written one year, one year after the first federal public charge rule was written that says, and I'll quote it, any person unable to take care of himself without becoming a public charge, unquote, would be inadmissible. Or in the terms that my agency deals with, uh, they can't do what's called adjusting status, getting a green card, becoming legal permanent residents. Same exact time, Aaron, same exact time. So again, um, not consulting with people that are actually knowledgeable on the topic, which is quite frustrating. Connecting the two. Oh, same time. Same time. Right. And I am not an expert on this, so I will defer to the experts on this. And again, the professor from Princeton who wrote the biography of Emma Lazarus in this Slate article talks about the context in which the poem was written. And the context for it was the rampant anti-Semitism that was alive and well at the time. And I'm going to read a segment from this interview to put it even further into context. Quote, another context for this is that there had been some very well-publicized anti-Semitic incidents in the late 1870s. This affected her, Emma Lazarus's, circle of affluent Jews. 
Banker Joseph Seligman was refused rooms at a hotel in Saratoga Springs, a hotel where her father stayed. So this got a lot of press, and the American Jewish community was especially wary about anti-Semitism. They had sort of united around this and had embraced the Sephardim, the German Jews, but this new flow of refugees was putting this all to the test. They were not German Ashkenazi Jews. They were Eastern European Jews. They were absolutely impoverished and dependent, and they were put into the quote-unquote refuge. They were taking advantage of housing subsidies, as we might say. This is what they were doing in order to take one first step toward immigration, and it was a crucial first step forward to be provided food and shelter, and then gradually they were a assimilated into the community in New York and a lot of other places. So it, it flies in the face of this public charge thing. Absolutely. And uh, and it's really I mean, I, I know that the expectations are low, but it's just shocking. For the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. It's just shocking that someone in a position of power, you know, I mean, I get pissed off when people who have like 30 friends post something that's not factual on Facebook. <laughs> And uh, I can verify this. And then, this is something I can attest and to. And then Ken Cuccinelli goes on CNN and is just, you know. I That's mean, prick shit, bro. That's prick shit. I mean, absolutely. Yes. That yes. sums it up. I yes. mean, really, it does. <laughs> because what he's trying to do is bamboozle the American public. Bamboozle people who aren't listeners to I Doubt It with Dollar. Well, bamboozle people who aren't going to take the time to go and actually figure this stuff yes. out. And because it's much easier just to hear this and go, yeah, that sounds right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Right. Even though you didn't do that, you know. Well, come on. There's several of us didn't. But, you know, it's easy to do that. I'm not saying... It's, it would be easy to just say, well, you, you gotta, you, we have a right to say who comes in. We have a right. We do have a right. Yeah, but we don't have a right to change the ethos of American immigration, to change what we stand for when we talk about the American fucking dream. And people are quick to point out, listen, this poem is not the Constitution. Of course it's not. Yeah, we know that. Thank you. Cheek, ugh. <laughs> That's a Stephen Miller line. Remember when he was grilling um, Jim Acosta mm-hmm. earlier in the year? I wish I had the clip here mm-hmm. where he's like, yeah, well... Uh, yeah, well, we're not basing immigration policy on a poem, Jim. <laughs> Jim. Ugh, fucking Stephen Miller. I felt like he was in the room with us. <laughs> right, right. Except his voice is not as dynamic and awesome as mine. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. It's more... <laughs> Jim, Jim, let me, hand, hand me my... I don't, of, I don't... Hand me my can of paint so I can paint my hair. I don't think that's right. It's more robotic. It is. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. 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 More arrogant in his interruptions. And robotic. Jake. 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 Mm-hmm. Is that it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so anyway, listen, we, we, we would love to know what you guys think about all of this. Um, I'm sure we have immigrants in the audience whose family grew up on some sort of public assistance. I'm, I'm positive of that. And I would love to hear about your experiences. I would love to know about what you believe this to be relative to the American dream and the Trump administration. Just, we want to know your thoughts. 657-464-7609. That is a number that should be in your address book. It should be at the ready for you to call in at any moment when requested. <laughs> You can also email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. 
Please, we'd love to know what you think. Moving on. Taking care of biz. The 850 plus people who arrived to a funeral in El Paso, Texas. Yeah, it's amazing how many people showed up. Yeah, to honor the um, the widower who lost his wife. And he invited people to come to the funeral because they did not have family. That's right. I think they said that... Um I was hearing this earlier today, and they said that they didn't have a large network of family, and he wanted his wife to be honored, to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funeral home put out like a notice on their website, and they they got a they got a, a, a pretty good response. And here's here's Anderson Cooper while it was happening, talking about it. You're looking at live pictures in El Paso, Texas, and you're looking at the kindness of strangers. Tony uh, Basco will, is not alone. That's Tony right there hugging people he didn't know until today. He's saying goodbye right now to his wife. The love of his life is everything. And then our Gary Tuckman reported last night he has no other family and invited anyone to join him this weekend for his wife's funeral services. His wife, uh, her name is Marjorie Ricard. She was one of 22 people killed in the Walmart shooting in El Paso. A funeral had to be planned. Her husband couldn't bear to do it alone. They didn't expect hardly anyone to show up, so he invited the world, and the funeral home put it on their website, and other people started tweeting about it. And tonight, the world is answering. Gary Tuckman is there, joins us right now. Gary, to see these images of a man who, you know, before all this horror began, before the, the this tragedy, knew nobody uh, other than the, the woman he loved and had been with, uh, and now to see him surrounded uh, by the love of strangers who are are now friends in in ways is extraordinary. Well, Anderson, if you've ever started to lose your faith in humanity, this will bring it back. We are standing outside this large funeral home in El Paso. You saw the inside of this building where there are 500 people inside right now. This is the line, the waiting line, people trying to get in. These are members of motorcycle clubs holding American flags. None of these people know Tony Basco personally, but in this line right now that you're looking at, I have counted over 400 people waiting to try to get in. They're not going to be able to get in because it is absolutely full inside. And it's just amazing because this all began because Tony Basco lost, as you said, the love of his life, Margie. They've been married 22 years. She was one of the 22 people killed at the Walmart. He has no other family in the world. He's lived a very difficult life. He was desperately sad. And he said, I just wish people would come to her funeral. There will only be a few people there when she's married. And this is the last of the 22 funerals. There were tweets from members of the media, a Facebook post from the funeral home. And all of a sudden, we see a total inside and outside of this church of at least 850 people. And I just want to give you a look at this line, how far it spreads. And keep in mind, right now in El Paso, It is 99 degrees outside. And this is the line here. People waiting here with the fans. And most of them are from the El Paso area and also nearby New Mexico. But I've talked to people also from California, from Arizona, and from Utah who've driven here. So the line continues over here. 
people with the fans, all knowing at this point they've been told they're not going to be able to get in, but they don't want to leave. And then the line wraps all the way down in that direction. We spent the day with Tony yesterday. He's just such a nice man. And he told me that if so many people came, like they expected hundreds of people, which indeed is what happened, he'd be forever grateful. And I can assure you, Anderson, when he walked into this building today, it's not officially a church, it's actually a large funeral chapel that is used by many denominations. When he walked in today and he looked at me and he said, I can't believe there really are this many people here. He was so thrilled and honored and happy. And it makes us very glad to be part of this. It really feels like this is what humanity is all about. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary to see. Uh, um, just, it's great. Gary, thank you. More of these kind of stories we need. Driving from California, Arizona, yeah. and Utah. It When I saw this video, and I know some of that um, required some visuals, so sorry that some of that was lost in the, in the audio, but um, really it's just the message here, right? Um, the kindness of strangers, people hearing this man's story and dropping what they had planned today. Yeah. To drive and go to the funeral of somebody that they didn't know. It's just such a powerful thing. And it's so moving. And in the midst of this like hell that we're living in with constant chaos and constant terrible news, it was so refreshing to be reminded that there are good people out there. There is a lot of goodness out there. And I think it's important to highlight it. Yeah. Love does exist still. In spades. Grace still exists. And I think we'll all we'll all be better for it if we remember that. And also pay that forward. Obviously, you know, the lion's share of you weren't able to go. Maybe none of the audience was able to go there. But we should endeavor to practice that kind of selflessness. And, you know, going to a funeral of someone you don't know doesn't benefit you. It benefits the person that's left. The Tony Basco of the world. I just it, it, It's inspiring that there's people out there still in the wake of all of the misery and shittiness that we just talked about this entire episode... This is why we have this segment of Taking Care of Biz. And every one of those, 850, 900, 1,000 people, whatever it was, ultimately, um, good. Good people. And let me say, there's likely Trump people among that crowd. As shitty as we talk about them being, it's not en masse. It's not every single one. I think it's instructive to love one another. Do as best as you can. And listen, I'm, I'm chief among them uh, for being, being tough on the other side. Moments like this give me a little bit of pause. Anyway, uh, we're going to leave you there. We, we love you guys. We appreciate you. We'd love to hear from you. 657 464 7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. If you've been on the fence about supporting the show, we are a listener supported outfit here. 
Every little bit goes a very long way, especially when we're able to marshal the size and the width and the breadth of our audience. So if you think, ah, I can't, two bucks, who gives a fuck? We can't, I don't give a fuck about giving $2. They don't care about me giving $2. We do care. It matters a lot. It helps us produce the show. It helps us do this twice a week and move the conversation forward. Again, we love you guys. We appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It. Also, I'm not completely put together, all right? <laughs> uh, so let's not go too crazy. I mean, goddamn, you're a podcaster. Seriously. Things aren't really going great. Lots of problems. <laughs>